like you said, we're tackling a tough topic, controversial topic um, of the Trinity uh, we're talking about tonight. And the question, I'm actually going to be answering two questions. I'm going to tackle two of them tonight. Does the Bible teach that God is triune, and does it matter, or why was it important that Jesus was sinless? Okay, all right. Um, Our first verse, we're going to start at the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's it. (laughs) In the beginning. (laughs) And let me say this. If you can get this verse, the rest of the Bible is easy. What I mean by that? If in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, what can he not do? If he can create a whole world just by speaking it into existence, parting the Red Sea is no problem. Walking on water is no problem. Raising the dead is no problem. So if you could just believe this, and that's why a lot, this gets attacked by a lot of the cults, that God didn't create the world. But if you can get that, the rest of the Bible is easy. Okay, all right, so the Bible begins with God. Okay, it doesn't begin with a discussion about whether he existed. It just begins, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God in the Hebrew there is Elohim. And it's the all-powerful one, the creator who knows all, creates all. The plural form of El is Elohim, the strong one. The strong, it's used in Hebrew as a composite unity. And the I am in the word makes it a plural form of the word. And that's why some people say you can use that word even to, to, to defend the Trinity. But in the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. And there are some passages that, that suggest the plurality of God. Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock and all the earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. But let us, God said, plural, make man in our plural image, singular. Let us, plural, make man in our plural image, not images. So God is speaking, not the plurality, the triune Godhead is speaking here. Let us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, make man in our image, according to our likeness. Genesis 3.22, the Lord God said, since man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree, and eat and live forever. So there it is, another us, since man has become like one of us, the triune God. Genesis 11 and 7, come let us go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So there are several passages that talk about the plurality of God. I'll give you one more. Isaiah chapter 6, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, who shall I send? He's speaking to, to Isaiah. Who will go for us? I said, here I am, send me. So there are passages that talk about the plurality of God, of the Godhead. And so the Bible, the question is, what does the Bible teach about God, about this Elohim? The Bible teaches that there is one God, okay? That there is one God. It's called monotheism. The three major religions of the world, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, all teach that there is only one God. That's one thing we all have in common, that we all believe that there is only one God. We are monotheistic in our theology as opposed to being polytheistic, which means many gods. We are monotheistic, and the Bible teaches that there is only one God. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 39, 
See now that I alone am he. This is God speaking. There is no God but me. I bring death and I give life. I wound and I heal. No one can rescue anyone from my hand. So God says, I am alone and he. There is no God but me. Isaiah chapter 44, verses 6 to 8. This is what the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, says. God's talking again. I am the first and I am the last. There is no God but me. Who, like me, can announce the future? Let him say so and make a case before me, since I have established an ancient people. Let these gods, small g, declare the coming things and what will take place. Do not be startled or afraid. Have I not told you and declared it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any other God but me? There is no other rock. I do not know any. So God's saying, when it comes to God, I'm it. There aren't, there aren't any others. Isaiah chapter 45. We're going to go through a lot of verses. I just want to prove with the Bible what we believe about the Bible. This is the Trinity. I think Christianity is the only faith that believes in a triune God. There's no other faith that believes that, other than they, some of them believe in a polyistic, but we are the only ones who believe that there is one God who's triune in three persons. So it's very, this is a very important doctrine for us, very important doctrine for us. Speak up and present your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who predicted this long ago? Who announced it from ancient times? Was it not I, Yahweh? There is no other God but me, a righteous God and Savior. There is no one except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. Everybody in the world, turn to me, the only God, and be saved. For I am God, and there is no other. Okay, that's Old Testament. Now, let's see what the New Testament says about this. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4 through 6. About eating food offered to idols, then, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, I like that term, so-called gods, small g, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods, small g, and many lords. Yet for us, he's talking to believers, for us, there is one God, the Father. All things are from him, and we exist for him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through him, and we exist through him. So, God said in the New Testament, Paul says, for us, there is only one God. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, for there is one God. And one mediator between God and humanity, Christ Jesus, himself human. So, the Bible says in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, there was only one God. Most people don't have a problem with that, that there was only one God. Although there are polytheistic beliefs, but most people believe there's only one God. Okay, now, what is it about this God? The Bible says that there is one God, but it also teaches that this one God is in three persons. There is one what? God and three who's, Father, Son, Spirit. Okay, one being called God, but three persons in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The three persons are distinct, yet not divided. Okay? They're different, yet not separate or independent of each other. All right? They are one substance or essence. Personhood distinguishes them. There is no divisions when they, are, when they appear separately. God is indivisible. Okay? All right, so the Bible says there's one God, who exists eternally in three persons. And the Bible teaches that each person is God. The Bible teaches that the Father is God. Deuteronomy 32, verse 6. Is this how you repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Isn't he your Father? 
and creator. Didn't he make you and sustain you? Malachi 2, don't all of us have one father? Didn't one God create us? Why then do we act treacherously against one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? So the Old Testament teaches that the father is God. All right. We just read in 1 Corinthians again, uh, but we'll look at uh, Philippians chapter 2. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. So the Bible teaches that there is one God who exists in three persons. Each person is God. The Father is God, as we just read. Most people, nobody has a problem with the Father being God. Even cults and heretics get this right. <laughs> they believe that the Father is God. They, have, they don't have a problem with that, that there is one God and the Father is God. The Bible also teaches that the Son is God. Now here is the problem. Here is the jugular that cults and heretics go after. They have no problem with the Father being God, but when you talk about the Son, Jesus Christ being God, okay, now we got a problem. If he's God, that's a problem. The Old Testament teaches that the Son is God. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. This is referring to Jesus Christ, the prophecy. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The next chapter refers to God the Father as the Mighty God in chapter 10, verses 20 and 21. But here, talking about Jesus, it says he's the Mighty God. Is that a contradiction? No. Because the Bible teaches that not only is the Father God, but the Son is also God. Micah. It's a prophecy about, about the coming Messiah. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origins is from antiquity, from eternity. That's referring to Jesus Christ. He's eternal, which means he's God. The only being that's eternal is God himself. There are so many other scriptures I could, I could use to prove Old and New Testament that Jesus is God. I, so many, so many. I'm just, I just gave you two in the Old Testament. Let's look at the New Testament. Okay. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is one of the most famous uh, passages that teach the, the deity of Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is referring to Jesus Christ. This is referring to Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. In the Hebrew, that word with means face-to-face, and the Word was with God. It's talking about personal relationship between the Father and the Son. It's talking about intimacy between the Father and the Son. He was with God. And the Word, that same Word, was God. And further down in verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, referring to Jesus Christ. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the New Testament in John chapter 1, the very first verse, in the beginning, remember in, the, in, in Genesis, in the beginning, God. Now in John 1, in the beginning, the same beginning, the same beginning, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
John chapter 8. The Jews replied, this is Jesus having a conversation with the Jews. You are 50 years old yet, and you've seen Abraham? They're questioning. He said, before Abraham was. Jesus said to them, I assure you, before Abraham was, I am. At that, at that statement, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus was hidden and went out of the temple complex. Verse 58, Jesus said to them, I assure you, this is a truth. I guarantee you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, where were the Jews know that statement of I am from? Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, the burning bush with Moses. When Moses said, who should I tell them sent me to deliver them? Who should I say? And, and God said, tell them, I am that I am sent you. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying. He said, but Abraham was, I am. In other words, I'm the same God in the burning bush that had the conversation with Moses. And the reason they knew what he was saying, because the verse 59 says, at that, they picked up stones to throw at him. Why? Because they considered it blasphemy. You're claiming to be God. Another, another pastor says, because you, being a mere man, claim to be God. He just kept telling them he was God. It just kept making them so mad. Because <laughs> he kept saying, I'm God, in so many words. And they killed him over it. They hated that statement. Because that was blasphemy. There's only one God. And they never knew God as a man. So you're claiming to be equal with the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? John chapter 20. This is after the resurrection, after Jesus' resurrection, when he appears to his disciples. Thomas responded to him, my Lord and my God. Now, Thomas was doubting Thomas. That's where that phrase comes from. He doubted. He didn't believe that Jesus was resurrected because he wasn't there the first time when, when the disciples saw him, and he didn't believe him. He said, unless I see the wounds in his side and the holes in his hands, I will not believe. And so the second time when Jesus appeared and Thomas was there, Jesus said, Thomas, here I am. What's up? Put your finger in my side. And when he did that, Thomas said, my Lord and my God. Now, Thomas was a strict monotheistic Jew. He would never call somebody God who was not God. The evidence was so overwhelming to him that he said, oh, you have to be God to rise from the dead. And I'm looking at, the, at, the, at, at your hands and your side. He said, my, you are my Lord and you are my God. And coming from a strict monotheistic Jew, that was saying something. And Jesus didn't say, hold up, Thomas, wait a minute, you've gone too far. Whoa, Nellie. No, he did not. Whenever people worshiped Jesus, he never denied it. He never said, stop worshiping, I'm just in it. No, 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 he never stopped them from worshiping him. Never. Why? Because he's God. Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. 
Colossians chapter 1 says, he created everything. There was not anything made that was not made by him. Jesus was the creator of all things. Another, another scripture in Colossians chapter 2 says, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Jesus bodily. I love that verse. All the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Jesus in bodily form, which says he's God. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature. You hear that? The radiance of his glory and the exact expression of his nature. Sustaining all things by his powerful word, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. But to the son, this is God talking now. But to the son, he says, this is God talking, your throne, God, is forever. This is what the father is saying about the son. Your throne, God, the father calls the son, God. Your throne, God, is forever and ever, and the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. That's an Old Testament verse that applied to the father in the Old Testament. But the father is applying it to the son and saying, your throne, God is forever and ever, and the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice, of justice. So all of those verses declare that Jesus is God. So the Bible says there's one God, exists eternally in three persons. Each person is God. The Father is God. The Son is God. Let me read something. Um, Charles Octavius Booth who, was, uh, who wrote this book called Plain Theology for Plain People. We actually had it in our, in our, in our bookstore. Um, excellent book. He's a former slave. Um, and actually, he was uh, the first pastor of the church that Martin Luther King pastored. Um, he started the church back in the 1800s. Um, but his book is called Plain Theology for Plain People. Excellent book. And it's just real simple theology for um, the commoner to understand theology um, and that he wrote. And this is what he says about, about the Incarnation. And I thought this was good. He said, we do, we do not understand this mystery. He's talking about the Trinity and the, and the mystery of the incarnation. We do not understand this mystery. And the Trinity, there is a mysterious aspect to it. So how can we understand that there is one God who exists in three persons and three persons be one God? There's a, mystery, it's a mysterious aspect to that. We can't really explain that. And we, we try to do that with people try to use different examples to explain the Trinity. And I get that, but they all fall short, all of them. All of them fall short because it is the mystery. It is the mystery. He said, he said, we do not understand this mystery. That is how the Son of God, the second person in the Blessed Trinity, took upon him the seed of Abraham and was made in the likeness of men. It's a mystery. He said, but there are two things that we do understand. First, that a being possessed of the divine nature and exhibiting superhuman excellencies of mind and character has appeared in human nature. We do know that. Second, that such a being was and still is the crying need and longing desire of mankind. He says, we need an Emmanuel, a quote-unquote, a God with us. We needed a days man, a mediator, one whose nature, position, and character might enable him to appear between God and man, to appear between God and man and here, and lay hands upon both. That's good. He said, he said, uh, uh, one whose nature, position, and character might enable him to appear between God and man and lay hands upon both. And such we have now in the God-man, Christ Jesus. So he had to lay hands upon on both deity and humanity. It's called the hypostatic union is the theological term for that. 100% God, 100% man, the hypostatic union. And so that's what we have in Jesus Christ. 
So the Father's God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. The Old Testament, this is the Old Testament, about, talking about the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. This is Job talking. He said, the Spirit of God made me. Genesis says, God formed man from the dust of the earth. But here it says, the Spirit of God has made me. Because the Spirit of God is man. Is, is, the Spirit of God is God. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Old Testament. Let's go New Testament. Then Peter said, this is the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, a familiar story. Then Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the field? They pledged to give a certain amount of money to the church. They gave part of it, kept back part of it, basically lied about it. That's what happened. So Peter is confronting them, confronting Ananias and Sapphira. He said, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? He lied to the Spirit of God. And keep back part of the proceeds from the field. Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? It was your money. Why'd you have to lie? You could have did what you wanted with it. And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you planned this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. But up here he said, you lied to the Holy Spirit. So lying to the Holy Spirit is equivalent to lying to God. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is God. Because the Holy Spirit is God. What makes up personhood? The Holy Spirit is a person who is God. God is, there's, there's three things, words we can use to describe God. that are not in the Bible as well, as well as the Trinity, by the way. One of them is um, omnipresence. The, where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to heaven, you are there. If, I'm, if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I live at the eastern horizon or settle at the western limits, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand will uphold me. So where can I escape your presence? In other words, nowhere. He says, if I go to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, you are there. Everywhere and in between, you are there. So the Holy Spirit is omnipresent. He's everywhere. That's what the Bible describes God as omnipresent. He's everywhere at the same time. But the word omnipresence is not in the Bible. Omniscience, which means all-knowing. Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or, or who gave him his counsel? Who did he consult with? Who gave him understanding and taught him the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? He's asking a question about who did all this with the Spirit of God? Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord? Nobody. He's omniscient. But the word omniscient is not in the Bible. But he knows everything. God is all-knowing. And it says here the Spirit of God is all-knowing. He knows everything. omnipotent, or some people say omnipotent. <laughs> now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Omni means all, potent is power, all-powerful. He's um, omnipotent, but that word is not in the Bible either. But the Bible describes, give these, uh, describes these um, attributes of God without using the term. Same thing with the Trinity. The Bible doesn't use the word Trinity, but the concept of the Trinity is taught, as we just saw. The Bible doesn't use the word omnipresent, but the Bible teaches that God is everywhere. It doesn't use the word omniscient, but it teaches that God is all-knowing. You, you know, that makes sense? You get that? Okay, so just because the word is not in the Bible doesn't mean that we can't use it. 
to describe the Bible. Is the concept taught is the question. So don't, don't let nobody throw you off by saying, well, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, so? So what? So also, the Trinity, the, 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 the Spirit has intellect, he has emotion, and he has a will. And he's referred to as he and not it. Never refer to the Holy Spirit as an it. He's a, he's a, he's a person. He's not an it. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses say he's a force. Well, no, he's not. A force doesn't have intellect and emotion and will. Intellect, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that the Spirit of God knows God. That's intellect. Ephesians 4 says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Grief is an emotion. And 1 Corinthians chapter 12 talks about he gives the Spirit, the gift of the Spirit, as he wills. He has the will. So the Holy Spirit has intellect, he has emotion, and he has a will, and he's omnipresent, he's omniscient, and he's omnipotent. Therefore, he's God. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 14 says, talks about the eternal spirit. Hebrews 9 14. The eternal spirit, the only being that's eternal is God. So as we can see, the Bible teaches that there is one God. The Bible teaches that this one God exists in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Bible teaches that the Father is God. The Bible teaches that the Son is God. And the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit is God. All right, now let's see if we can see all three of these together. Matthew chapter 3. This is Jesus' baptism. After Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. And there came a voice from heaven, this is my beloved son, I take delight in him. So you see, Jesus is being baptized, so there we have Jesus at the water, he, was immediately, he went up immediately from the water, the heavens opened up for him, and he saw the Spirit of God, there's the Spirit, there came a voice from heaven, the Father, this is my beloved son. So there you see the Trinity in operation. You see the Father, you see the Son, and you see the Spirit in operation. Matthew 28, verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. There again, you see the Trinity right there. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the authority of the Father. The name is not... There's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a, a denomination that teaches that the name here is Jesus. So, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. But um, the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. All right. That's New Testament. Can we see the Trinity in the Old Testament in operation together? Isaiah chapter 48. Approach me and listen to this. This is God speaking. From the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. From the time anything existed, I was there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. This is Jesus. He said, the Lord God, the Father, has sent me, Jesus, and his spirit. There you see the Trinity right there in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament. Let's go back to the New Testament. Uh, is that what I want? Second Corinthians chapter 13, the benediction. Uh, give the Trinity as well. I guess I didn't give you I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't give you that one. Second Corinthians chapter 13, there's a benediction prayer where it talks about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All right, now, let's see the Trinity in action in salvation. All right? Ephesians chapter 1. Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who has blessed us, you see, God the Father and Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavens. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ for himself, according to his favor and will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he favored with us in the beloved. We have redemption in him through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he planned in him, for the administration of the days of fulfillment, to bring everything together in the Messiah, both things in heaven and things on the earth in him. We, have received an inhe- we also received an inheritance in him, predestined according to the purpose of the one who works out everything in agreement with the decision of his will, so that we who have already put our hope in the Messiah might bring praise to his glory. When you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He is the down payment of our inheritance for the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. So in this whole prayer, we see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in operation in our salvation. All three is in operation in our salvation. The book of Titus. He saved us not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. He poured out his Spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. He saved us, God the Father, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. He poured out this Spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So again, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in operation in our salvation. In our salvation. All right, now, so we see that the Bible teaches... There is one God who exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each person is God. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, and we see three in operation in our salvation. Now, I want to talk about three errors that that people make in, 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 in trying to describe and explain who God is. One is called modalism, which teaches that there is one God who exists not in, in, in three in essence or nature, but he manifests himself in a Trinitarian way. In the Old Testament, he's seen as the Father. In the New Testament, he's seen as the Son. And then in the, in the church age, he's seen as the Holy Spirit. He manifests himself. It's three manifestations. It's one person, God, who manifests himself in three different ways. It's called modalism. Or back in the day, Sabellianism, a guy named Sibelius is who made this popular back in the day. It was defeated in the Council of Nicaea, by the way. But it teaches that the father is like wearing a mask in a play. In one scene, he puts on a mask to become the father. In another scene, he puts on a different mask to become the son. And then another scene, he puts on a different mask to become the spirit. But it's the same person. That is not biblical. That is not what we just read or what we just heard. That's called modalism. That is not biblical. Second is Arianism, which teaches that there is only one God. Jesus is a created being. He was created. He was the first creation of God. And, and, and a guy named Arius made this popular. This was also defeated at the Council of Nicaea by Athanasius, an early church father. So uh, there's one God, and he created Jesus, and then through, through Jesus, he created everything else. 
And modern-day Arians are called Jehovah's Witnesses. That's what they teach. They teach that Jesus is not God, that he, Jesus and Michael the archangel are the same person. That's heresy. And they teach the Holy Spirit is a force and not a person. But as, you, as we just read, that is not what the Bible says. That's not what the Bible teaches. So modalism is error, Arianism, and then there's tritheism, which means there was three gods. The Father is one God, the Son is another God, and the Holy Spirit is another God. That's heresy as well. That is not what we just read. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Mormons also teach that you can become, there are multiple gods. The Mormons actually teach that you can become a god. The Mormons believe that Jesus was once a god. That God was, I'm sorry, that God was once a man and he became God. And they teach that, that you can become God and rule your own planet. Heresy. So these are uh, uh, heresies, uh, bad teachings about the nature of God. Every single heresy begins with the nature of God. Everything in heresy about God begins with the nature of God. Who is he in, in nature? So if you get that wrong, you're going to get a different God. So like I said, the Trinity is a unique teaching, and just because it's not in the, the word is not in the Bible doesn't mean that it's not taught in the Bible. And the word Trinity was used first by Tertullian, who was a church father, back in around 200, about 100 years before the Council of Nicaea. See, see the teaching is, cults teach that, that the Trinity was created at the Council of Nicaea. Jesus, they, they, they made Jesus God at the Council of Nicaea. That is not true. That's a lie. The word Trinity was used 100 years before the Council of Nicaea was even, was even uh, 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 had. So that's a, that's a whole other conversation. But these, these are teachings that we need to be leery of. We, can, we can't, we can't, we can't, uh, we have to stick with what the Bible says. Because if you get the nature of God wrong, you get a different God. If you get Jesus wrong, you got a different, you know, do you realize there's different Jesuses and different cults? Jehovah's Witness got a Jesus. Muslims got a Jesus. Mormons got a Jesus. The New Agers got a Jesus. And the church got a Jesus. The question is, who got the real one? Which one is biblical? See, there's all kinds of Jesuses out there. Like the Bible says, there are, there are many gods, small g, and many lords, small lords. But he's the God of gods, the Bible says. He's the Lord of lords. So, um, but I can't stress this enough, the importance of knowing who God is in his nature, in his essence, in, in, in his being. So, the Nicene Creed, this was established after the Council of Nicaea because it had to be, the church had to put in writing, if you will, what they believed, because one of the things they were arguing was, who was Jesus at the Council of Nicaea? Was he God, or was he a creation of God? That was the argument that was had. And, 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 and Athanasius, who was a deacon at the time, really defended the Trinity um, so well, so well during this Council of Nicaea. He was an African church father. His name was Athanasius. But he defended the Trinity. And because of that, this had to be established. Now, there are other creeds. There's the Athanasian Creed, actually. Athanasius wrote a creed, and it was pretty long, so I didn't want to use that one because it's really long. But, <laughs> but the Athanasian Creed, along with the Apostles' Creed. But these creeds were established so people would know and the church would know what we believe. So let's read this. The Nicene Creed says, We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, seen and unseen. 
We just read that. We read that earlier. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Begotten, not made. They had to put that in there for the, for the, for the um, Arians because they said Jesus was made. And then we had to say, no, begotten, not made. Of one being with the Father. You hear that? Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation he came down from heaven and was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and became truly human. That's what the church believes. That's the Trinity. If you don't believe that, I'll let you finish the rest. <laughs> the church believes every biblical Christian believes in the Trinity. Every biblical Christian believes in the Trinity. All right. So, we have one God, eternally existent in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each person is God. So, does the Bible teach the Trinity? Yes, it does. We just answered that question. Is the word Trinity in the Bible? No, it doesn't have to be. Is the concept of the Trinity taught in the Bible? Yes. We just went through it. I could spend hours with more verses and stuff just, just, just proving this point. I could, it's just easy to do that because there's so many verses. Now, some of the attributes of God, real quick. The attributes of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's independent. He doesn't need us for anything. Acts chapter 17. He's transcendent. He's beyond the universe and beyond all our intelligence and imagination. He's infinite. He's beyond our limits and understanding. Isaiah chapter 55. He's eternal. He has no beginning and no end, Psalm 90. He's a creator. He created everything. He doesn't need, he doesn't owe anybody anything. He's immutable. He doesn't change. He's consistent. He's unchangeable in his being and per perfections and purposes. And finally, he's holy. So all three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, have every one of those attributes. That is the God that we serve, this triune God. All right, second question. Why did Jesus have to be sinless? Why was that important for him to be sinless? Okay. Okay. Oh, that's, I'm sorry, I didn't read the rest of that, did I? Okay. You know what we believe. All right. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm pressed for time, y'all. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Um, in the Old Testament, God's holiness required a perfect sacrifice for sin's payment. Always a perfect sacrifice for the payment of sin. He required that. He had to. He was holy. Leviticus chapter 1. Then the Lord summoned Moses and spoke to him for the tent of, from the tent of meeting. Speak to the Israelites and tell them, when any of you brings an offering to the Lord from the livestock, you may bring your offering from the herd or the flock. If his gift is a burnt offering from the herd, he is to bring an unblemished male he must bring it to the entrance to the tent of meeting so that he may be accepted by the Lord. Okay, in the Old Testament, sacrifices were made to pay for sin, all right? Animal sacrifices. Lambs, goats, sheep, excuse me, were, were, made, uh, were sacrifices made to pay for sin. And as you can see, it says it had to be, verse 3, unblemished male. Okay, that's important. And verse 4 goes on to say, and, and the sacrifice is the atonement for his sin. 
So the sacrifices were the atonement for, this, for their sins. All right. Leviticus chapter 1, verse 10. But if his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from sheep or goats, he's to present, again, an unblemished male. Unblemished. They had to be un- without blemish, unblemished, which means without any defects. The animals could not have any defects in them. They could not have a broken leg. They could not be blind. Nothing. They had to be perfect to, to, in order to be accepted. If they had any defect in them, they were unworthy for sacrifice. So that's why I wanted to point out without defect. That's important. That's important. Without blemish. And they made atonement. And the atonement means to cover or to pacify their sins. God used the, the blood of the animal to cover the sins of the people. In, in atonement, the innocent party takes punishment for the guilty party. Remember that. The innocent party atones for the sins of the guilty party. That's what these blood sacrifices were for in the Old Testament. Now, there was something called the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 16. And it was a one time a year where the high priest went into the Holy of Holies on behalf of the people, and he had to take sacrifices with him. First of all, the Bible says, to pay for his own sin. He had to take an unblemished sacrifice, first of all, to pay for his own sin, and then for the sins of the people. Once a year, he did that. It's called Yom Kippur, Jews celebrated today. It's one of the highest um, um, holy days in, in, in Judaism. It's called Yom Kippur, but it's in the Old Testament, the Day of Atonement. So the Day of Atonement, uh, the high priest went in and offered sacrifices for himself and for the people. And it's very detailed, and it was too, too long to read. I, that's why I, I, too long, too long, too long. All right, now, that's the Old Testament sacrificial system. Blood animal sacrifices, all right, to pay, to cover for, to atone for the sins of the people. Into the New Testament, um, John chapter 1, verse 29, uh, John the Baptist says when he saw Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. One of the sacrifices that was made was a lamb that was sacrificed. And, and John says, Behold, referring to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Okay, in order for Jesus to pay for our sin, he had to be one of us. He had to become one of us. Hebrews chapter 2. Now, since the children have flesh and blood, referring to us, in common, Jesus also shared in these. He became a man. He had flesh and blood like us. So that, here's why, through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. Jesus didn't die for angels. He died for Abraham's offspring, which is you and me, human beings. All right? It's clear, the Bible says, he did that. Verse 17, therefore, he had to be like his brothers in every way. He had to be like me. The Messiah, the Savior, had to be a man. Had to be like me. So that, why? He could become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. See, in the Old Testament, the high priest uh, um, 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 stood in proxy for the people. He represented the people to God. The high priest did that. So Jesus is our high priest in the New Testament, it says right here, so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. What is that? 
propitiation. It means to appease or to satisfy. It's the Greek equivalent to atonement in the Old Testament. So Jesus, so in order for him to be, he had to be a faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation or atonement for the sins of the people. All right? And that atonement changes God's wrath from us to Christ. Did you hear what I just said? It changes God's wrath from us to Christ. God was satisfied with Christ's sacrifice. He made a propitiation for the sins of the people. So how and why was Christ able to appease God's wrath? How was he able to do that? Through his active obedience, the theologians call it. His active obedience. He earned our righteousness by obeying God his whole life. So, see, see, he couldn't just come and die at the age of six or seven to pay for our sins. He had to live a whole life, a perfect life. He had to, he was 33 when he died. He had to live his whole life obedient to God in order to stand in our stead. All right, so I'm just going to read a few scriptures, um, and we'll be done. I'm almost done. Hebrews chapter 7. For this is the kind of high priest we need. Now, remember, in the Old Testament, the high priest represented the people. All right? Okay, so this Hebrew says, this is the kind of high priest we need for real, for real, for real. Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. None of the Old Testament high priests were that. So we need somebody who was holy, who was innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. And that's who Jesus was as our high priest. Let's continue. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as a high priest do. Remember, the high priest went in to offer sacrifices for their own sin, first of all. He said he doesn't need to do that as a high priest do first uh, for their own sins and then for those of the people. Why? Because he was sinless. He did this once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak. See, the high priests in the Old Testament were weak, weak men. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the promise of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son who has been perfected forever. Glory to God. Yes, Lord. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the promise of the oath which came after the law appoints a son who has been perfected forever. 1 Peter chapter 1. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life inherited from the fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold. In other words, God didn't pay for our, our souls with silver and gold. But, verse 19, with the precious blood of Christ. Now, remember the Old Testament, it was the blood of the animals, with the precious, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without defect. Remember that? Without defect. So Peter's relating to the Old Testament sacrifices to Jesus now. He said, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without defect or blemish. Verse 20, he was chosen before the foundation of the world. Listen to that. Listen to that. He was chosen before the foundation of the world, but was revealed at the end times for you. See, God decided to do this before he said, let there be light. 
he decided to sacrifice his son. Uh, Revelation chapter 13 said he was slain before the foundation of the world. <laughs> God, this is so good. He was chosen before the foundation of the world, but was revealed at the end time for you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. All right, all right. Um, for you know that you were redeemed from the empty limb way of life, inherited from the fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without defect or blemish. Okay, all right. Hebrews chapter 10. Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the actual form of those realities, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continue to offer year after year. Those old animal sacrifices didn't work. They weren't good enough. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered? Since the worshipers, once purified, would no longer have any conscience of sin. If they worked, they wouldn't have to do it over and over again. But in the sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. Every time you did that, you were reminded, you were reminded that you were a sinner. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. He said, that's impossible. It didn't even work. That's, okay, let's, let's, let's just go. All right. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, therefore, as he was coming into the world, it's talking about Jesus. He said, you did not want sacrifice and offering but you prepared a body for me. Jesus said, God, that's not really what you were looking for. You didn't even want sacrifices and offerings. He said, but you prepared a body for me. You did not delight in whole burnt offerings and sin offerings, all those lambs and goats. You didn't really delight in that. Then I said, see, it is written about me in the volume of the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. After he says above, you did not want or delight in sacrifices and offerings, whole burnt offerings and sin offerings, which are offered according to the law. He then says, see, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first, the first order of, of, of sacrificial system. He takes that away to establish the second, his own. By this will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. It only took him one time to do that. Once, one time to do that. One time. That's all it took. He said, he said, you didn't want or delighted. The Romans 8 says, uh, 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 let me get it right. Um, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who, uh, who walk according to the flesh and not, who walk according to the spirit and not the flesh. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sin or as a sin offering, is what that means. He sent his own son as a likeness, in the likeness of sin as a sin offering so that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walked after the flesh and not after the spirit. God, I love that verse. I love that verse. For what the law could not do, those animals didn't, they couldn't do it for me. He said God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh like me and on account of sin, he killed sin in the flesh. God, okay, glory. Every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sin. But this man, Jesus Christ, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He is not waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. He's just sitting there waiting to take them out. <laughs> for by one offering, 
He has perfected forever those who are sanctified. Talking about us. We are perfected forever positionally. Perfected forever because of the one sacrifice that he made. Okay, all right, all right. I'm, I'm, two minutes, two minutes, I'm done. Romans chapter 3. But now, apart from the law, God's righteousness has been revealed. Attested by the law and the prophets... That is, God's righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Since there is no distinction, he's talking about between Jews and, 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 and Greeks and, and Gentiles here, there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24, they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. God presented him as a propitiation, that word again, God presented him as a, as a propitiation through faith in his blood, to demonstrate his righteousness, God's righteousness, because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. Verse 26, God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. Here we go. So that he would be righteous and look, declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Declare righteous. Let's talk about us. So that he would declare righteous those who have faith in Jesus Christ. He didn't say you were righteous. He says, so that he would declare you righteous. How? Through your faith in Jesus Christ. One last verse and I'm done. Oh, did I do that? Okay. Oh, sorry. Uh Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 21. For he made him, this is God talking, for he, God, made him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we can become the righteousness of God in him. I'm going to say that again. For he, God the Father, made him, God the Son, who knew no sin. First Peter says, he knew no sin, neither was any gow or deceit in his mouth. Who knew no sin to become sin for us, not to become sin like us. He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, not become a sinner like us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So why did Jesus have to be sinless? So that I can become righteous. So that you can become righteous in him. If he was going to present me and and represent me, he could not be a sinner like me. So why did Jesus have to be sinless? Because a sinner could not die for me. He had to be sinless so that the Father can make the Son be sin in my place so that he could declare me as righteous in his, in his, in his presence. Amen? Amen? Amen. So we serve a triune God who in his wisdom and holiness and righteousness sacrificed his perfect, spotless son in my place, in your place, so that you and I can be declared righteous. And he remains righteous in doing that. So as we celebrate communion tonight, let's worship our triune God, our holy and righteous triune perfect God who had a perfect plan, God, this perfect plan to make us righteous in his presence. This Father, Son, and Holy Spirit said, Let's devise a plan to save sinful mankind. And the son said, prepare me a body, Father. I'll go and die in their stead so that you can declare them righteous.